Hello and welcome to the Coffee and Comics Club. I am Todd A. I'm Taylor Trask. Good morning. We are, again. We are recording to- this digitally. <laughs> digitally. We had a joke uh, back and forth earlier that uh, Todd Todd pronounced it digitally, and I told him he sounded like a great aunt. Searching, you're shopping for a birthday present for her estranged 12-year-old... Uh, Strange. <laughs> estranged 12-year-old... Oh, the story gets even layered, more layered. Uh, I am. I, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna spoil this right now. I'm not drinking any coffee. Oh, <laughs> what about what? yourself? I am absolutely drinking coffee, Todd. It's a coffee and comics club. <laughs> We're in the clubhouse, and I am drinking Nicaragua Segovia from our friends at Switchback Coffee here in the Springs. Oh, wow. um, if you've been listening to the last couple episodes, you know I am now completely decked out with all the the accoutrements of a true coffee consumer connoisseur consumer connoisseur and uh so i've got my you know i've got my burr grinder i've got my my little gooseneck pot all that aeropress and uh i uh last week grabbed a bag of this it's a light roast and i've i bring this up because i've noticed i am more uh susceptible to the south american beans than i am the african beans not that i hate the african beans but there's something about the way they roast and grow South American beans. There's usually a lighter texture and a kind of a fruitier texture that I really like. Seems like the African beans are tend to go a little darker. There's sort of a there's a different quality to them that almost you know I almost kind of like more in the winter. I think it's hard to interesting it's like a warm like you know cold outside, warm inside kind of coffee. Whereas South American coffee, Mexico, Nicaragua, it, you know, etc., Brazil. That's, just naming random know, South American countries. Uh, Mexico is in Central Columbia. America. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Central uh, South. I'm, I'm kind of lumping it all together. Anything south of Texas, let's just say. like all Not the, American. Not American. Um, um, certainly not Canadian. But no, you know, the, see, the, as a coffee Philistine, I've never really considered that. But I have noticed that I prefer the Kenyan beans uh, for making iced coffee. Because I want it a little bit darker, mm-hmm. you know, so that when I ice it, it and it and it naturally uh, it waters it down a little bit, then... I'm good. I only recently saw this giant map that explained the coffee band. I didn't mm. even understand that like all coffee was grown between. I mean, I guess I had heard that it was grown between certain uh, uh, latitudes, but um, I it was, you know, I'm sure it was in a coffee shop and they had a giant world map with a, a band right in the middle. Like this is the coffee band. And it, it sort of went through Asia and South America, Central America and Africa. And <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why they don't grow coffee in Canada. <laughs> yeah. One more one more interesting note on that. If you really want to geek out about coffee production and growing, Alex Gibney has a documentary he produced Ooh. called Cooked on Netflix that oh, stars yeah. Michael Pollan as the sort of uh, narrator slash – but it's, it's an Alex Gibney thing. So if you like, like his work, this will look and feel just like it. But there's an episode about fermentation. And in that episode, it's a great episode all, all the way around, but they have at least 15 to 20 minutes devoted to coffee production. And it's like, it's awesome. You get to see, and I think they even throw in a chocolate uh, beans as well. You get to kind of see how all of that works. Um, and it's just like, oh, well, you, you want to run out and just buy your own beans that you could roast yourself because it's so just such great food porn anyway i'll definitely have to check that out you and i are big alex gibney fans and that dirty money series which he did not direct 
all of the episodes, but he produced them. I mean, it just has, it still has that Alex Gibney feel. So I'm sure cooked works the same way. I have to confess. I did not know journey money was a, an Alex Gibney. Oh, okay. Production. Oh, I now, Oh God damn you. Now my, my Sunday, I'm going to have to have it on the background, by the way, for our listeners too, if you care about Alex Gibney's final plug, um, we learned a week or two ago, I think two weeks ago now, that he is producing a documentary about Theranos. So get ready for that. I yeah. can't wait. Early 2019 <laughs> is what we're told on HBO. Oh, God, it's going to be. Anyway, what have you picked this week, sir? Well, I have got a a more or less conventional comic. Um, it's a, a, a trade paperback. It's not a one of the big two. I, I picked Descender. <gasps> by, uh, Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen. Um, it is what we read this month in uh, the comics book club that I have been attending. Um, and yeah, so I had read it about a year ago. Uh, the first we read the first volume. So I had read the first volume like a year ago. And I honestly, I, as a, a fan of Dustin Nguyen, I still didn't really like it. Hmm. Um, and it and uh, I, I my friend Chris was very into the series and like volume two or three was coming out at the time. And I don't remember if I read it before I saw Dustin Nguyen at Comic-Con, but I'm pretty sure if you go to our 2017 Comic-Con wrap-up, I tell the story of that image panel, the artists telling stories, and, and Dustin Nguyen was on it, and he showed some panels from Descender. And so maybe after that, I thought, you know, that looked really interesting and read it. Um, and then honestly, we thought, I, you know, I, I'm not feeling it, but I, the story, I thought the sci-fi bit of it was like, probably appealing to to other people and so i sent you my copy um Mm -hmm. and then when knowing it was coming up for for book club this month i honestly thought you know what i'm just gonna go in like (laughs) i read it you know a year ago i can i can get by in a discussion of it uh and and then uh, recanted that position and thought no it's it's pretty cheap on comiXology for volume one it was like 5.99 or something so i'm just gonna grab it Mm -hmm. And I did and reread it this week and really, really loved it. <laughs> oh, my God. So now, wait, let me pause right there. Is that because the form factor I, of digital worked better for you for the story than the printed version? I, that is exactly where I was going. I, okay. I hypothesize that may be the reason. So I, Dustin Nguyen's artwork is just wonderful all the time. And he's really heavily into watercolors. And when he spoke about this... I believe the story he told was that sometimes he doesn't even do a sketch. He'll just mm-hmm. go straight to the canvas and just mm-hmm. sort of start working on it. But it's, it doesn't, it's not like um, it may be if you are very, very used to the normal way that comics look and not sort of like image or other, um, you know, uh, non big two books look, it may be kind of bracing to see how much watercolor is in this and how washed it feels, mm-hmm. but it still looks like a comic. Like, so the other, yeah. So I think just to appreciate the art, you need the printed version because you actually want to see his big layouts and his pages. Because like I said, I think he conceives of those pages all together on one canvas and just starts painting it. I don't, I don't know that he paints panel by panel, but I do think the guided view going through dialogue to panel to, you know, I think that helped me follow the story and care about the story more this time. So I'm really torn. You know, I don't know what I would tell people to do. I think um, if you if you got it digitally and got into the story, then you're you're definitely going to appreciate the art 
and maybe you can enjoy the rest of the series printed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and maybe if you really loved the art in the printed edition and you want to know the story, maybe this is the way to go. I'm, I'm really torn. The other thing I hypothesized for why I maybe didn't like it was because at the time it was very heavily uh, and still am, but most of these series have slowed down. I was still reading black science saga, paper girls, and to pick up another sci-fi title with unconventional comic book art was like, oh boy, <laughs> you know? So um, the story is, uh, I and I, I'm going to avoid all planet names and alien race names and a whole bunch of other technical jargon because I was definitely structuring this like, boy, I wish we could come up with a common vocabulary for space because it's kind of like every sci-fi story is describing the same things like hyperspace mm-hmm. and they give it a new name you know it's in guardians of the galaxy it's it's jumps or whatever yeah. wasn't that what they called it yeah and in you know it's hyperspace and some things and in this one they call it shift space okay you're like oh boy okay so uh, there were so many different vocabulary words and, and planet names and stuff i'm gonna try to avoid that and give the the big bullet points of the story which are um, it opens up on this planet that is in a galactic system of like nine habitable planets. Um, and these giant robots have appeared. Uh, and then the robots do some sort of attack on the planet, but it's really not clear. Like one robot appears at every planet, sort of a, a Pacific Rim kind of thing, except that the robot is as big as the planet, basically. Mm-hmm. And it's they've just appeared at each planet. And they each attack the planet. And they do some huge amount of destruction, but it's not, it's obviously not like totally apocalyptic because people live to tell the story and, and persist. Um, but <clears throat> what happens is uh, it creates this huge fear of robots and the, all these planets have become really dependent on AI and robotics. And so vigilantes start destroying the robots, the robot culls. Um, and I guess there's even like not just vigilantes, but it's officially sanctioned. So they uh, these robots are just being destroyed like in mass to where they you don't see them anymore. And oh, sorry, were you about to jump in? Well, with a question? I'm sorry. This is just making me think of either the uh, the kind of the origins of the Matrix in the Animatrix. There was that two part like anime version of like basically th- this. You know, oh. we create AI, and then there's like these you know, anti-robot, anti-AI people. But I think even more prescient to me right now is just the uh, Butlerian Jihad in the story Dune. It's like the whole point of, which it's so fascinating that so many of these um, epic kind of sci-fi, sci-fantasy stories kind of share similar heritage, even though it's not like, you know, it's not referenced to be the same thing. But like in, in the context of Dune, the whole reason there's all these like super powered people is because there is a ban on all AI. Like man shall not make robot in his image mm-hmm. anymore because there's this thing called the Butlerian Jihad where basically man went to war against AI and narrowly won. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just like every time I hear anything <clears throat> kind of in the same, you know, any, like kind of early, early days of what could have evolved into that. I'm always like, man, is this all, it's interesting that we're all sort of thinking about the same things tangentially. Yeah. Well, in the book club, um, there are a couple of people brought up uh, uh, some Blade Runner comparisons mm. with, you know, and, and what is this a robot or is a replicant a robot or an Android or are they all androids? And, you know, where do we differentiate there? And, and then uh, another person um, made the interesting comparison that this is like a Pinocchio story 
Like, mm-hmm. I want to be a real boy kind of thing. Okay. And so there's not a lot of pages spent on the robot culling. Like, this is not a story about destroying the robots. We see that event happen. And then 10 years later, and, and we see it through the eyes of this doctor, Dr. Kwan, who's like the father of modern robotics. Mm-hmm. And 10 years later, you know, jump to 10 years later, they're waking up uh, like this uh, general is like banging on Dr. Kwan's door. And, um, and he's like, Dr. Kwan, you've got to see this. And so they, they take him on this thing. And uh, basically they say for the past 10 years, we've been trying to find the codex, which is like sort of the base language at the heart of these harvester robots. That's what they call the big giant robots. Um, because the, the codex would maybe give them some clues to where they're from and all this kind of stuff. Um, and they've just, uh, uh, they've uh, in this time, a Tim robot, which is like a companion robot, which looks like a child. This is where the Pinocchio story comes in. <laughs> has suddenly revitalized itself on this distant mining colony. So Dr. Kwan and then these two military or not, maybe not military, but you know, officers in the United Galactic Council or whatever, they uh, fly out to this mining colony. So you get sort of the vibe of alien, you know, um, and they're going to recover this companion robot that looks like a little boy. Okay. So this little boy has been given all these like emotion sensors and stuff from Doctor. He's, he's the character you see on the cover of Volume yeah. One. Right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, in that time, like, so I guess during that journey, the um, uh, leader of that group is her name is Telsa. Um, so boy, there are way too many Tesla uh, jokes. <laughs> because of that. <laughs> um, but her name is Telsa and uh, she is really aggressively questioning Dr. Kwan. And w- she tells him the reason we're, you know, like you're being dragged along and all this is because we finally decoded that codex from the harvesters. It's your codex from mm-hmm. the Tim robots. Mm-hmm. So someone has taken this very innocent AI that you created and made these, terrible world destroying robots that have now turned all the populations of the nine habitable planets against robots and AI. So we need to bring this back intact and then, you know, use it as like forensic data basically. But of course they don't get to the planet first. These, whatever they're called again in sci-fi language, reapers or ravagers or harvesters, (laughs) whatever. This this does get a little confused. Like, I know. It is too, which is sad because, you know, there are things like obviously like the force is very specifically Star Wars. You can't just say the force without having ever. And that's that's even less a like, hey, we're going to get sued and more like fans are going to be really fucking confused if we try to do that. Yeah. Whereas, you know, surely hyperspace can be a universal term by now. Like, you know, maybe Gene Roddenberry owns it for all we know. But it's just it is a little like don't invent your own cute little variations just for the fun of it. You know, Yeah. So whatever they're called, get to the planet first. Um, the, the human population on this mining colony has been wiped out and this boy. So, so through flashbacks, we learn how the, you know, the boy came to live with a family there to to be a companion to another young boy there and, and came to think of that boy's mother as his own mother and think of that boy as his brother. And he knows it's like when they finally talk to him, he, he is able to say, I know it's not my real mother, 
but mm. that's how I think of her. Which um, is interesting. Okay, so I, I was going to wait till the end, but this is a great point here. Does this story have the ex machina vibe? Um, uh, uh, not narratively, but just in terms of sort of the subtlety or the way they talk about or perceive AI. Uh, it's it's just not that deep. It's more okay. um, there's not like that conflict between a human and created robot. I mean, where there is, it's very explicitly laid down. Like in the you know when there's a sort of flashback to Quan creating Tim, he says to him like, "You understand, I am not your father. I am your creator. But we are going to have you live with a family." And it's just it's very very you know literal and explicit. Um, so. Uh, they get uh, before um, Quan and Telsa uh, can arrive and find Tim, the Ravagers or the Reapers or the uh, Savagers or the Scrappers or whatever they're called, show up and start pursuing him. And his he has revived his robot dog companion um, called Bandit. So he and Bandit are like running away. I mean, it's very like a lassie kind of story, you know, Tim and, and bandit running away. And um, so they're running away from these scavengers and they run into and, and activate this other robot, a mining robot. That's a driller, which obviously drills through uh, rock. Um, and that driller has come to hate humans. So the driller sets about sort of murdering most of the <laughs> scavengers that are after them. Um, but then they're still being pursued. And, uh, when Telsa and Quan get there. Um, and at that point, the, you know, scavengers have, have blasted Tim. So there's a big thing where they've got to, you know, they've got to repair him and they've got to like salvage his memory and put it back into his body before they leave the planet and blah, blah, blah. And, um, it, the, some of the confusing parts of the story are where they're, it, it's sort of flashback slash dream sequences or something where, uh, the memories are being re-implanted into Tim. But other than that, like this, uh, and this is what's so funny is that's what I remembered about the book. So it was obviously a sticking point for me a year ago was feeling like, man, I, you know, the story's not progressing. I'm just sort of lost in this whole like origin of the robots and stuff like that. But what I got from it on rereading it was I was able to just move through that stuff really quickly and and then the story really progressed and i you know i felt that um it's not as fast paced as that first volume of black science which just feels like pedal to the metal mm-hmm. um but it, it you know it's definitely moving like and of course they you know this group has their troubles trying to get back to whatever the planet nirata or whatever their planet name is uh with tim and um you know it's some of the same beats that you would find in any sci-fi escape story like that. But uh, I just found myself like really liking it. And there are a couple of characters where you have a first impression of them. And then when you learn something else, it's like totally flips the impression around. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to proceed with this series now, you know? Wow. Yeah. Which is interesting. Okay. So like I, you had sent me, like you'd mentioned earlier, the uh, paperback volume one, and I had sort of read it and I, I, I've been aware of the series for a little while. Um, I've, it's always kind of been one of those image titles that's always there. It's always in shops. It looks, you know, unique and interesting, cool. And by the way, Jeff uh, Lemire also is uh, creator of Royal City, which I haven't gotten super into. 
Um, but he's also the creator, along with Scott Snyder, of AD After Death, which was a oh. limited series that I really, really liked. Also heavily watercolor. And Royal City also heavily watercolor, too. So I think Jeff Lemire does the covers for Descender, if I'm not mistaken, as well. I, I don't know. I mean, it's very Dustin when looking. That's true. Um, Regardless, so Jeff Lemire's got some, like, he's got a really cool point of view. And I always keep forgetting he's involved with Descender. And so um, I, I had mentioned before that sort of the, it's almost like there is an, an it, you, you tell me if you don't think this, but it almost kind of looks like an Asian almost anime but like very not even anime that's the worst way to frame it not anime um but like an asian like still art kind of vibe to the descender watercolor like it's very there's a minimalism to it and sort of just a very kind of the flourishes remind me of like japanese um like poetry and images combined so there's kind of there's kind of that vibe to it which i think at first i didn't quite that didn't pull me into this this sci-fi aspect of the story so much, but hearing you describe it and just knowing Jeff Lemire is involved, it's like, oh shoot, I need to give this a good second look. And I think digitally might be the way to go. Um, It's fascinating you say that you had a different experience with it digitally. I finally picked up Black Science Volume 1 digitally and actually like it a lot uh, and didn't quite, and I I think here's, Here's what it might be for me, and this this may have been your situation. Black science, the art is so very specific and so so kind of very unique to what it is that I think when you open up a book and you see it kind of all there, it's almost a little overwhelming for the yeah. eyes to take in. So when you're seeing it on a panel-by-panel basis, not only can you um, – appreciate it more for what it is but it lets your brain sort of sink around the story more and not just be like whoa what am i you know descender is a very it's it is a very very unique looking yeah you're not you know towards your point yeah and it's such a soft look you know that um like I get that that Asian influence thing of the you know the, you're very aware of the brushwork and the, yes. the gradients involved are very natural because they're painted and it's you know it's uh well, it's but, very earth tone too, right? There's a lot of like, you know, rose yeah. and, and browns and grays. And like, they don't really ever get out of that color palette, which is which is totally intentional. But again, it's very evocative of kind of like that natural, poetic sort of just more of a, more of a, a, a not like rock'em sock'em sci-fi, which is kind yeah. of what black science is to your point. But it's, there's very much, it's, it is a different, it's a framing device for the story that I think you really have to kind of understand before you start reading it. Yeah. And it's, uh, uh, Oh, I think, I think my point just totally slipped out. Oh. Of my head. oh, I'll tell you what it was, was that, so I will say that when I went back through digitally, um, I really appreciated the character work. And so that was something that for sure got lost on me on my first read was that I did. I just didn't appreciate how detailed and unique each different sort of uh, race of aliens was and things like that. And when, and just, you know, doing the uh, guided view, I, I was very aware of like, Oh wow, that is a creepy looking alien or, you know, or look at that weapon right there. And there's a, a, you know, a couple of bat, and also there's a couple of battles and there's one scene, um, with some really explicit gore in it. And it just kind of catches you by surprise. Like, Oh, you know, I didn't expect that given the sort of soft tone of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's actually really, really well rendered. So it's, it's worth thinking about what gets lost on that. I think the difference, well, black science, you know, 
breaks out of the panel format too, but black science is a little bit more panel oriented. Actually, it's probably not. Um, I, I kind of wonder what both of these books would look like it, if they had their unique art style, but stuck more to a panel format, if that would actually make it more understandable, like it's nine tiny canvases you're looking at instead of one giant canvas, you know? Um, I, I think the sci-fi story doesn't necessarily need to be told in one big canvas, you know, for mm -hmm. certain set pieces. Sure. But a lot of sci-fi, you need to be like in the details because they're throwing all this vocabulary at you and stuff. And you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Mm. So, well, I'm going to, I'm assuming you're, you're kind yeah, of, yeah. that's a great transition point for me. So like it, I'm going to sum up blacks and not black science. I'm going to sum up descender. Good Lord. Um, <laughs> as, one of those one of those books that is almost like a David Bowie album in the 70s. Like I would imagine like if you're a little kid in the 70s, you're like, <laughs> I'm into music, and you get this David Bowie album, and you're like, what the heck? What? I mean, it's it's totally not anything you're used to seeing or listening to. And the onus is kind of on you to figure it out. Like it's it's one of those things where the art is so confident that it's like, look. This if you want to expand your perceptions and you want to dig a little deeper, take the time to do so because you'll be richly rewarded if you do. But this is not going to be you, – you, you're going to have to kind of up your game as a reader or in the case of the 70s with David Bowie as a listener um, <laughs> to appreciate, which is a great transition point to my pick this week because that's exactly how I feel about my thing. And I'll preface this by saying – um, after Todd has wonderfully done two really good non-comics picks over the last two weeks, which I actually thought was really fun and cool and still fit within the coffee and comics vibe of what we review, but was definitely, you know, we're actually just novels. I've got a thing kind of in a similar mindset, and it should be no surprise to you, Todd, what it is, <laughs> considering that I've been talking about it for the last week. But Amazon Prime recently uh, started re-airing the original uh, episodes of The Prisoner, oh. which was a 1967 British uh, TV series. It was only one series. It was only ever meant to be one series, 17 episodes. Uh, and it's, it's really the opus uh, project of one Patrick McGowan. He created it. He wrote a lot of the episodes. He was the showrunner, essentially. He directed a lot of the episodes, and he's the starring character. So this is really his, like, pure, like purely his project. And I'm going to – it is definitely one of those shows that, just like I said, you have to spend the time really trying to figure out. Like, it's there. And, yeah, because it was made in the late 60s, there's going to be some, you know, stylistic things. Like, some of the editing is really, really terrible. Um <laughs> Because you're just like, what, what? But it's it's obvious that it was, you know, it, uh, it's a product of its time. So at that point, like, people didn't quite understand what editing could be. So you kind of have to, like, you almost have to suspend your disbelief in those situations. Well, sure. They didn't have computers to find the right point to edit. That, but just even just tonally, you're like, man, they could have, like, I mean, it, it's one of those things where you'll see a scene in the pilot and, like, you know, it'll cut, 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 go cut, back, cut. You know, just like, oh, dude, you guys could have. You guys could have maybe spent another pass at this. But regardless, a lot of it, because it was made in the 60, late 60s for TV, um, you know, a lot of – they didn't really shoot outdoors a lot then. And this, this is a – it's almost like a movie, like a 17-hour movie um, that you – because a lot of it's really well done. So let me, let me back up. The whole – the premise of this show – and again, it was all created by this one guy. 
um, is that there's this unnamed man, and you see this in the opening credits of every episode, this unnamed man, he's a secret agent with British intelligence. One day he walks in and just sort of resigns. And you see kind of him like, you know, yelling at his superior and like slamming his foot, you know, fist on the, the desk. You never really know why. And it doesn't seem like it's even that important, that, but he, he's resigned. He goes home and he's in his apartment. And while he's in his apartment, this you know, creepy dude with a you know, overcoat and top hat on uh, sprays some kind of uh, poison or something into his um, knockout gas in his apartment. And the main guy, the spy, he, he passes out. He wakes up in a similar kind of space. But instead of being in the middle of downtown London, he is now on this resort island. And he walks out his door and there's this crazy village around him. And all the people are dressed like Waldo for some weird reason. There's with these stripy shirts on, these kind of beanie hats. Um, and you're just like, what is going on? The whole point of the show, and, and I'll, I'll back up, this entire show is a metaphor. It, and it's a metaphor for many different things, but you should not watch the show literally. It's all about individualism versus groupthink. It's about how society can impose its will on you sometimes even if you don't want it to be. It's about subverting expectations. It's about being, you know, really figuring out who you are in the world and sticking to that and not, let, not letting that idea of yourself being co-opted by either culture or economies or even your friends and family. It's about so many different things, but it's kind of packaged in this framework of this spy is now here and then they're all hell-bent on trying to get him to, to explain why he resigned. Um, and you can take that even as a metaphor for he's resigned from culture. He's resigned from like, you know, systems of society and it's, you know, the systems are wanting to know why the systems are fighting back. So they put this character and, and when, the moment he ends up in this village, he's referred to as number six. Everybody in this village is assigned a number. You never know their names and that's intentional. You never ever find out his real name. It's not even that important. Um, they just refer to him as either sir eventually or number six. And so you just, you come to know him as six. And, you know, he's rebelling against that. He's like, look, I'm not, even in the opening credits, he screams out, I am not a number. I'm a man. I'm an individual. So that's always kind of, you know, put, you know, put in front of you. The main antagonist in this show, and one of the reasons I'm really kind of fascinated by this program, is uh, a character called number two. And he, for all intents and purposes, is the one in charge. And you never find out, well... You're, you're always left to wonder, well, who is number one? If, if this is number two, who does he answer to? And you get some glimpses of that. And, and obviously, Six is always trying to figure that out because he wants to know who put him here. You know, why is he here? Why can't he escape from this village? Um, and number two is kind of his antagonist. Number two's job is to figure out why he resigned, to try to get Six to conform to the society they've built. The interesting thing about number two is it's always played by a different actor in every episode. And they bring out these incredibly heavy hitter British actors of the time to play number two. Uh, a lot of them are men, but every once in a while you'll see a woman pop up, which is kind of cool. And it's never really like it's, – it's, they never make a big deal about the fact that there's a different actor every time. Um, in fact, in the opening credits, they usually show you uh, – they, they rerun the same scene every time in the opening credits of how – the guy got to the island or not the island, but to the village and got to be six. And at the very end of that, there is, um, you know, the, the number two chair rises and turns around and 
that typically reveals who the n- number two in that episode is. And, and that actor will repeat the same line that is always repeated um, at, at, in the opening credits. You're like, oh, Wait, cool. This is who it's going to be. Is it a position like M in the James Bond universe? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Very similar. Very similar. So it, you know, they really lean. It's interesting because it, on the surface, it's a show about this spy who, you know, this other sort of maybe more secretive spy organizations trying to get information out of. But you can't watch it literally like that. It's going to drive you nuts. You got to, you have to, because it's not about that. It's about all this deeper meaning and all these metaphors. Um, because so, of that, is it kind of difficult to get into? I mean. Yes. Oh, okay. yes. And I'll, I'll just announce this now because this is, this is probably, uh, this will probably help. We're actually hopefully going to be starting. I and Charles uh, Wefso, who's uh, another host on their network, we're going to be doing a prisoner companion show because um, Charles is really, really interested in this in this show. I've just gotten interested in it, um, and we're going to do a podcast that just covers each episode because I think there's so much to dig into that if you just you you watch an episode and you desperately want to talk to somebody about it because you want to understand it better, you want to know like what what was going on here, like some of it's so confusing that you're just like, you almost want like a therapy session just to like get it out of your system or out of your head. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of that. So number two is, 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 um, is kind of the antagonist. And, and there's, what's great about a different actor playing at every episode is that it's always the same kind of, they treat it like the same core character, but you get to see it through a different actor's eyes every episode. So some, you know, one episode, number two might be much more sadistic and much more authoritarian, you know, like big brother in that regard. Another episode, number two might, might be much more, you know, kind of friendly and cat and mouse playing and just more like, you know, almost kind of like Moriarty, you know, with, with mm. Sherlock. Another episode, number two might be completely suave and debonair and just like you know you almost kind of you almost want to root for him or her uh, another episode number two might be a, way more paranoid and delusional and, and david miscavige like and you're like oh my god and and i'm not even I, I bring that up intentionally too because there are some of these episodes where you're you're left there watching going oh my god it's like somebody has dramatized scientology <laughs> and it's like i'm not even joking like you're watching this going is this like Scientology was around then, but nothing, you know, nobody really knew about right, it. There's right, right. Yeah. No way for it to influence pop culture. But you're watching this going, God damn it. If no, if I didn't know better, I'd think that like, you know, Patrick McGowan was was intentionally trying to parody, you know, this guy living in the Sea Org. Well, just me know, looking at pictures of the village online, I'm like, like when you said that, I went I, I immediately went, Yep, those those are Scientology buildings. It's I dude, it and it, it is it's like the number of times you think that it just keeps going. Like I've, I'm now about halfway through watching these episodes and it's just like, man, there's a lot of, if you're a Scientology watcher as we are, there's a lot of interesting parallels here. Even the fact that, I mean, take the idea of number two, you know, who is number one in Scientology? Well, LRH, you know, but we don't ever see him anymore. I mean, he's dead obviously, but we, we don't see hey. him, but his influence <laughs> is, is there. So like Miscavige is number two. You know, so I just, it's, there's a lot of weird, if you watch it in that context, it gets kind of trippy and surreal. LRH um, is, he's, he had to do some outer body work to bring back the higher levels. Yeah. I don't know if you were listening. This, um, this work has to be do- done totally exterior from the body. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so a couple more in- interesting points here. Um, uh, the episodes, other than the pilot and then the last two episodes, there is a lot of debate over which order these episodes should go in. And there's not – Patrick McGoohan has died. Um, 
and he died in 09. So there's no, like, he can't chime in on this. So the BBC had, you know, had an order for the episodes that was different than what PBS ran in the 80s oh, or 90s, um, which is different from what AMC put out on their DVD series, which is also what Prime, Prime is using the, the AMC DVD um, oh order. man! Now okay. here's 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 why this doesn't matter. Between the pilot and the last two episodes, the last two episodes absolutely have to go in that order because they're they're the only two episodes that are connected to each other in a very intentional way. Um, but the episodes in between, you could mix and match, and it doesn't necessarily change the narrative of the story because it's all about him trying to get out of the village. It doesn't really like episodes don't carry over into other episodes really at all um so you could mix and match and rewatch them in a different order and 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 have it kind of be a different kind of show but it's still you still get to that same ending regardless it all mm. all paths end and coalesce at those last two episodes so it's it's almost like this puzzle box that was set up to be a puzzle box but there's any variety of answers to it and i don't know if patrick mcguhan had that in mind like it's really crazy you want to watch this this show and have like Wikipedia up and ready on your iPad as you're doing it. Because um, apparently like as the show went on, Patrick McGuhan became even more sort of like, you know, dictatorial in his, in his creative choices and, and kind of made the cast and crew nuts. Um, and, and he, then he started drinking. So he became kind of abusive on set too, um, you know, verbally and everything. So it's like the whole show kind of becomes this metaphor for Patrick McGuhan's own life. And so you're just like, how, huh. how did this get funded? Because this is like, this is Twin Peaks 25 years before Twin Peaks. This right. is 1967. So you got to wonder like, who, how did he convince anybody to give him money for this? Because like, this was, I mean, even for today, this would be very cutting edge, you know, avant-garde kind of TV. In 1967, this was like, you know, this is from another world almost. Um, yeah. Strangely enough, it was launched the same year Monty Python's Flying Circus came out. So keep that in mind. But, you know, think about all of that as you're watching the show. And then think about the fact that in 2009, AMC did a reboot, um, a, li a limited miniseries reboot of The Prisoner that was very much based on the premise of the show, but it went in a very different direction, both stylistically, but also narratively. Like what, who number two in, uh, in the, the reboot, uh, Ian McKellen plays number two, Jim Caviezel plays number six. And so it's, you know, it's kind of, it starts in the same place, but it, it ends wildly different and become, it starts to become about something else entirely hmm. than what the 60s series is about, which is fine. Um, there was no way they were going to just remake that original 60s series. Like it needs, it, it is so sui generis, just got to stand on its own. Now, do you um, think, have you uh, watched all of the episodes now? I've watched, there are 17 total. I have watched um, eight of them. So are, got, um, the way to go do you do you like have you watched any of the 2009 series do you oh yeah think you would oh, oh okay. yeah no, no, no. i i back in 09 when that came out i both loved it and bought oh, it and so i've been familiar with the it. property since 09 and i've been wanting to always go back and watch the original 60s series too um but it's just i never wanted to buy them all and i'm like well surely this will be yeah. on streaming at some point and then it just never was and now it finally is on prime That's which true. leads me to wonder if I, I almost wonder, you know, sometimes Prime will do this when they're interested in potentially um, uh, acquiring the rights to a property or relaunching it, you know, as like a new show or something. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see that 2009 series appear on Prime too. 
I'm I wouldn't be surprised if Amazon isn't right. considering trying to relaunch the prisoner. Just yeah, throwing that out there. I, well, I was going to ask along those lines, are you aware of, is there any extended universe that's kind of uh, come out of this? Are there books or comic books? Oh or my God. I'm so glad okay. you asked this, Todd. <laughs> it's the perfect transition because uh, at the same time, this it may have even been the same day. If it wasn't the same day, it was at least the, the next day. I, actually, it was, I discovered this last Saturday um, <laughs> and on Monday of last week. I went into our local comic shop here in Manitou Springs, which is, you know, small and quaint. Doesn't have that greatest of selection. It's pretty much a big two kind of kind of shop. But on one of the spinner racks, I happened to see four issues of the Prisoner what? graphic novel as published by DC in the late 80s. And there are four, there's A, B, C, D, um, and there's four of them. And I bought them all for 10 bucks total. I was just like, and they're all in pristine condition. So this is the only piece of spinoff media that Patrick McGowan uh, signed off uh, his likeness to be like, he basically authorized it and then gave them because they, you know, his likeness is portrayed in it. Yeah. Um, And so it is, it is meant to be a direct sequel to the series. It's not clear how I'm still getting through that. I don't know how much time has passed from the ending of the series and this, Um, but it is just as, crazy and interesting and convoluted and uh infuriating as the show and sucks you in just as much and i'm so i'm not even joking like i see the series i walk into the comic shop all not even it's not even just that they had one they had the entire set yeah and you know on the spinner rack i'm like oh my god i i may be living in this show like i need this (laughs) right now so that i grabbed that that's just the kind of thing that miss gabbage would do to you you know (laughs) And I'm telling you, like this show, you almost kind of, you have to, this is not a, you don't want to just binge this or mainline this for like, you know, your whole day. Like I can only watch this maybe two at a time total because there's so much to take in and it kind of starts to mess with your own mind because you're like, wow, you start to ponder all the different metaphor. You start to ponder all the different, like, you know, man, what, what was his, what was he trying to comment on with this episode? Why was, you know. What was the budget like for this one? Because some of the episodes are really well made and directed, and some of them are a little, are a little rough. And so you're you're balancing all that. Um, it's man, it is for anybody who likes comics, uh, anybody who likes sci-fi, like anybody who likes any of the the TV shows we take for granted today. So Game of Thrones, uh, uh, Breaking Bad, Carnival, you know, obviously Twin Peaks, any of this like these these heavy hitting genre shows. I, I would argue, I mean, somebody correct me if this is wrong, but The Prisoner circa 1967 might be the genesis point for all of this. Because I can't find a single example of a show this sort of, this, well, at this it, level, anytime before this, where you're like, my God, every show that we see today almost owes something to the DNA of this series. I would think that's that's probably true because I have always heard it talked about in those terms of sort of the the er show that came before, you know, all of our series. Well, I mean, I typically Twin Peaks is referenced as kind of like that was the show that changed the game. And that might be true in America because that was, you know, truly that was an American produced show. But man, this the prisoner is twin i mean you're just as confused and just as intrigued watching the prisoner as you are that first season of twin peaks we're just like what the hell is going on and there and it does not cater to the audience at all like it is on you to try to figure out what the hell he was intending i mean 
even to the point where I, I jumped ahead and watched the last two episodes because I'm like, I got to see where this is headed. And I heard huh. through just all my reading and background reading that the last episode was one of the it, – is it was supposed to be one of the most confusing, infuriating pieces of television ever produced and actually, after it aired, created riots. Uh, fans of the show would show <laughs> up at Patrick McGowan's house demanding an explanation. And so he had to flee the country for a month. Um, because it was so frustrating. And, you know, today we would be talking about it online, like, oh my God, and we'd be complaining about it. But like, imagine this then, like TV viewers (laughs) must have just been like out of their minds, like what? And so I watched it. I watched that last episode. And sure enough, it is, man, as confusing as some of these interim episodes are, that last one is very, very, very hard to wrap your head around. Um, Hmm. So I may have to watch that sucker six more times before I finally have a... (laughs) An well, understanding, you know, it definitely sounds like the the perfect show that needs like a an accompanying podcast to be yes. an explainer and commiserator with the confusion. Yes, yeah. So I can't wait to do that. But I, I uh, again, I, I it's my pick this week because there's a really awesome comics uh, wow. tie-in, which I'm so glad you you asked about. But also, just as as anybody who likes the show, who likes the books we like, you know, who's into independent, highly creative storytelling. Oh my God, this is a show for you. And it's it's one of those shows that's always been on my radar, as I'm sure for yeah. many people. Same thing. It's like, oh, it's just always in your orbit. Um, and now that it's on Prime, man, it's a great time to jump in. Uh, I can't wait to finish it up. I'm becoming more obsessed with it as <laughs> as I get further into it, which may or may not be a good thing. I don't know. You know, I don't know if it's if that is I may end up being just as crazy as awesome. as Patrick McGowan is in the show by the time it's done. Well, I love, uh, you know, I mean, just like you, you uh, appreciated those novels that I picked. I, I love hearing, uh, you know, tangential media that is related to coffee and comics. So that's, it's a, a cool way to use our, our time to discuss it. Oh, absolutely. So I'll be back next week with a more traditional conventional pick. Um, but in the meantime, go check out The Prisoner and go check out Descender Volume 1. Yes. And where can people find us? You can find us online anywhere podcasts are just are, are found, I guess it's redundant. Um, yeah. <laughs> Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Pocket Casts, um, anywhere but Spotify. Still working on Spotify. I think we're close. Pippa is our distribution platform and they're they're getting closer. Also, we are at findusthere.org. That's where you can find this and other shows we've done. And hopefully, if we get this prisoner po- uh, watching podcast up and running, you'll find that there too. Awesome. Uh, anything you want to shout out, uh, a personal network wise or anything? Uh, no, I always say I'm by Taylor Trask on Instagram. So find me there. And I think yeah. you on Instagram too. I'm Hey Todd A. Um, cool. Well, uh, yeah, next week, maybe we'll have two comic books, but, um, hopefully if you enjoyed this episode, you'll enjoy the last two where I talked about novels and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and you talked things. about a single issue one time. So I do a very <laughs> important single issue. I'm still, man, that. That go, the, the origins of Galactus are really. I just keep thinking about like if we if Marvel if the MCU can stay strong for another ten years, if they can figure out a way to do Galactus as like a true just like you know where Thor hears the word Galactus and he's just like he just shudders with fear like that that could be really. <laughs> I'm sure, you were gonna say shits his pants. But were that you know like <laughs> I mean, the Thor just. Sh- Shudders. <laughs> Shudders with fear. Uh, well, that's well, it's more Shakespearean to shudder with fear. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, awesome. th- check check that out too. I, there's more more to come. But anyway, hey. until until next week. Yes, we will see you then. <laughs> <laughs>